Hey everyone, hope all is well out in your world and grateful to have you here for another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and on this week's episode, I welcome in comedian Brittany Brave. Let me give you the rap sheet on Brittany before we jump into the episode. She is a New York City via Miami-based comedian, seen on TBS, MTV, The Wendy Williams Show, and featured in the New York Times, Elle, Ashton Kutcher's A+, and more. In 2019, Brittany was named Best New Talent in the New York Comedy Festival and produces the monthly shows Rock Candy Comedy at Rockwood Music Hall and Improvised Tarot. And she also runs Cat Call, which is a platform for female events and conversation. Had a tremendously fun conversation with Brittany. Uh, we even did some improvised tarot that you'll hear in the episode um, and just had a blast. So I hope you guys enjoy our conversation. So without further ado, my chat today with Brittany Brave. Let's get it started. Brittany, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to have you. Pleasure to be here. Hi. Yeah, good to connect with you. What does a comedian do during a pandemic? Oh, lose their minds. Uh, <laughs> have an existential crisis, uh, regret quitting their career in PR. No, um, they uh, they continue to do what they always do, which is, I guess, try to make sense of the world around them, no matter how crazy and unusual and unexpected it is. Um, they get used to virtual everything, so virtually telling jokes and all the awkwardness that comes with it. Um, and yeah, it's not, it's not too much of a joke too, that, you know, we, we cross our fingers, say our prayers, whatever kind of spirituality we have that when we come out of the tail end of this pandemic, comedy will still be essential. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting. I actually just saw in morning brew this morning, they were talking about like Broadway, how that's been decimated, um, yes. because of the pandemic. So I'm curious from, because it's so important to be in the in the throes of like the the small intimate setting and stuff like that so it's kind of interesting how you know that's taken obviously a big hit besides a lot of things right but yeah yeah no for sure yeah no i have a lot of close friends that are actors stage managers you name it in theater broadway um and all those related fields and yeah i mean they're definitely feeling the blow of it and when it's going to come back um and yeah it's just uh there are forms of entertainment that we've tried to make work virtually and we've done our best and we're trying to wade through the uncertainty of all of this, but they're definitely mediums that are best served live IRL. Um, so I can only hope that the comeback is bigger than the setback, especially when it comes to live comedy and that, you know, whenever it all returns, people are like ready to laugh and see a value in live stand up than they didn't before. So, yeah. When did, um, when did you realize you could make people laugh? Ah. <laughs> um, still working on it. No, I'm kidding. Um, I, um, it was early on. It was, I was always a jokester in my family. I have two very, very funny parents and a very funny, large, loud, crazy, unhinged Italian family. Um, and early on humor was something that surrounded everything that we did. And my two parents as crazy and goofy as they are unsurprisingly raised a ham. So I will honestly say that whether or not I fully recognized it, it was definitely very early in life that I realized I was the person at the dinner table that could crack everybody up or I uh, could do impressions of my favorite cartoon characters or movie characters and things like that. Um, so being funny was always, whether or not it was something I was definitely gonna make my career and it took me a while to realize that, it was always a part of like the fabric of who I was. Like I knew that 
I could make people laugh. I was a goofball. I could diffuse a situation with laughter. I could make a stranger laugh during conversation. So, um, yeah, like I said, my mom is very, my mom's very dry and quirky and weird. My dad's a total ham, attention hogging goofball. Um, and they raised a direct product between the two of them with that. So super early on, I was like, I think I'm funny. I think people, uh, get, get a kick out of whatever it is I'm doing and saying for better or for worse. So <laughs> was that part, was there any deeper, um, this is going to sound really weird, but like, we're, cause the reason is I'm looking in the mirror at myself. Like I was very awkward and I used to be kind of a jokester and I could, that's how I made myself comfortable in groups by telling jokes and like, yeah. and having fun. But is that, did you feel like awkward and out of place? Is that why you felt like you had to maybe big jokes to, or, or was it something else? Sure. I'm sure some part of that came into play um, and, and not always feeling like I fully fit in or that I looked like or sounded like or did things like other people. Um, but I, I will say it was a little bit the opposite for me that the second that I realized that I could make people laugh or I could garner attention in a positive way from people and bring joy to them from being silly and funny, I kind of quickly realized that it was one of my superpowers. And um, for me personally, and I think a lot of comedians echo this too, you know, once you realize you have that in your arsenal, that becomes like the most important quality that you have. Like nothing, nothing else matters, right? Like that's how, that's sometimes how it feels as a comedian, like where you're like, yeah, but I, I can make people laugh. Like that's at the end of the day, that's what I'm living for. That's the most important thing that I'm able to do. It's, it's my superpower in a sense. So yeah, I'm sure it's born out of a little bit of awkwardness and not quite being like other people, but once you own it, you're like, oh, wow, I've got a, I've got the kryptonite here for every social setting. <laughs> did, did you feel like, you know, so you talked about kind of being, you know, kind of a late bloomer, if you will, kind of getting into kind of professional comedy. Yes. But did you realize that was a potential path and just didn't go down that path or didn't even think about it back then? I, I acknowledge that it was something that people did, but I didn't realize it as an actual reality for me. I, I just thought that it wasn't a secure path. I didn't think it was something I was personally going to do. Um, I knew I always loved comedy and performing, um, but I never just put two and two together that that could be the path that I traveled down and had success or that it was actually a tangible option. It wasn't. And especially when it came to like stand up, like I did improv and sketch for years and stand up was such an isolated reality for me. Like I was like, well, that, that's like its own thing. Um, so a, a big part of my like career transition was putting two and two together and realizing like, you know, you can monetize your life and have financial security and build a career off of this. It doesn't necessarily need to be this like predetermined path. So yeah, like I acknowledged people did it, but for sure, for, for many, many years, I didn't realize it was like available to me. Yeah. Why do you think, do you think that was part, because obviously there's a lot of people that like entrepreneurs and stuff like that, they'll go out, they'll start a business when they're 16. It kind of amazes yeah. me. Some people do it. So I wonder if you're similar to me in the approach of like, I had zero confidence of like thinking I could do it. Was, was that part of it? Do you think? I think just so. Not believing sure. yourself in yourself? Yeah. Not, not believing in myself, not considering it an option. Um, I had always grown up with this very polarizing view of what financial and career security was. And I thought that like it was linear, a linear path. And and I, I come from two old school Italian parents and a family that it was just like, well, make sure you have a job lined up when you get out of college and you can't move to New York and just do acting and comedy. Like you're crazy, you'll starve. You have to know what the next step is. Um, 
and they're super supportive by the way i'm like i don't have mommy and daddy issues i adore them they're my best friends but i do think it was breaking some like generational insecurities and realizing like no you can you can monetize and build a life around whatever it is you want as long as you're passionate about it um and yeah confidence too just always viewing that as like a leap that i couldn't really do or a leap that was a little bit too crazy so keeping comedy in this i'm gonna do it every now and again hobby box and until like two two and a half years ago realizing like no if you get good enough at it and you're passionate about it the money and the security will come you know yeah yeah well so that's what that's what i want to talk about here now there's going to be some stories in between we'll get we'll get to but yeah how do you ultimately make the jump to say i'm leaving pr which you did for i think like six years Mm -hmm. and i'm going to invest heavily and go full-time into comedy How how do you make that that's a big leap yeah how do you make that decision yeah, it's um the decision was made in a drop of the hat cliche movie moment. Like it, it, I think it was hibernating in the back of my brain for a very long time, and it was only ever wanting to do comedy. Uh, meeting this weird intersection, serendipitous intersection of really hating PR, and then that kind of discontent just bled into every area of my life. Like I landed in a super abusive relationship. I don't think my friendships are super fulfilling. I wasn't happy with any other choices. Um, so the decision was quick. Like it was a wake up one day, realize whatever the status quo is, isn't working. Um, but I, I always try to tell people that that actual transition into making the leap into comedy and doing what it is that I wanted wasn't really overnight. Like that was like a every day reprioritizing, rescheduling, um, making less time for PR, more time for open mics, right? And and starting to like welcome some financial insecurity when it came to like abandoning PR, but then like, okay, well, fingers crossed, come what may from comedy, I'm gonna try and write and do more from that. Mm-hmm. Um, I would even say it wasn't until like this 2020 was supposed to be my first year that I was going to be like financially really mostly going for it with comedy and letting comedy pay my bills and, Mm -hmm. you know, a la COVID here we are. But um, yeah, it was just, it's, it's still, it took me like a good year to fully get out of PR and cast that net aside and be like, no, I'm a comedian and I'm going to only try and make money based off of my comedic performance and writing talents and here we go but yeah so the decision overnight the process not so much well part of that probably was what we just talked about is is the society of like this is what you do you get a job you work in it you you know you pay the bills and don't worry about that other stuff that's for other people you know you have to do you know so it's kind of the as you mentioned the generational stuff of like that kind of suppresses a lot of people from living kind of their most fulfilling life you know Absolutely. Yeah. And that fear of like, I think you really have to sit down with yourself and realize like, what's the absolute worst that will happen, you know? And when you're making any kind of pivot like that, there's going to be discomfort. There's going to be uncertainty. There's going to be fear. Uh, there's going to be moments when you're like, oh, ugh, this month, you know, there's not a ton of money coming in. And instead of beating yourself up or panicking, realize you're making a huge career shift, right? So you're you're moving away from that safety net. You're moving away from all it is you've ever known in terms of career and financial security. And now you're trying to repurpose all your time and talents in a new space. You're obviously going to have a little bit of growth spurt and a learning curve. Um, but yeah, not letting the fear, just knowing that like this too shall pass and you'll come out of it on the other side. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's so much a comedy too, right? Like comedy is like getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. So. How did you come to real? So you mentioned a couple of things there. One, so you were in a pretty bad relationship. Mm-hmm. 
and you had bad relationships around you, friends maybe that you associated with, you mentioned. How do you, because obviously you got into those and they were probably okay at the beginning. So how did you start to realize that they were being more of a negative versus a positive on your life? Because some people are just stuck in that and they just, they go through and they don't realize they are in those bad situations, you know? Yeah, for sure. I, um, and I was for a, a good chunk of that relationship in that time in my life, just thinking that everything was okay enough. And even if it wasn't perfect or there, there were things that I knew weren't really acceptable or safe or okay, just kind of for the most part, thinking that I was coasting by all right. Um, and I think like anything else, there's a growing discontent um, with that relationship in particular, you know, that was heavily abusive, you know, just realizing that no one relationship or choice in your life should ever live in a vacuum right? Like you should never be in a relationship that you can't present to other people in your life confidently and comfortably. And, you know, you shouldn't have one area of your life that's completely and utterly draining you and taking you for everything that you're worth. Um, and it, it was over, it was over time, just really realizing that like all of my emotional energy, all of my mental capacity, all of my, my, every part of me was like going towards being in this relationship and staying alive and safe in this relationship. And then anytime I thought to leave, I didn't feel like I had anything really worthwhile to turn to, which was scary. Cause I was just like, well, I work. Well, I don't like work. Well, I have my friends. Well, I, I, there's a lot of people I don't really trust. I don't know if I have those healthy kinds of relationships and, and just not having an incentive for lack of a better term. And then that's like the important juncture where you're like, okay, well, well, what's the block here? Like, what's the thing that's stopping me from enjoying and really living my life to the fullest in all these other areas. So, yeah. How did you end the relationship? I'm, I'm curious. Uh, fleeing it. <laughs> Just like an utter, complete flee. Were you all yeah. living together? Or? Yeah, we were living together for part of the time. It was long distance for part of the time. Oh, the, really, the, all, all three years were a total mess, to, frankly. But um, uh, somehow now, the most important thing that I've ever gone through and the catapult that brought me into, as cliche as it sounds, the new life that I'm in now. But yeah. when you're surrounded by that level of physical and mental abuse it's really hard to rely on your own sense of agency or know what's reality or what's the reality that your partner wants you to believe um so it takes a really really long while to go back to trusting your own instincts and knowing what's right for you and knowing like hmm, you know my day-to-day -day life isn't really unfolding the way that i thought it was i didn't think i'd be treated this way i didn't think i'd be making decisions like this um and it's not uncommon at all. In fact, it's more common than anything in, in domestic abuse that it's often like a, a really dramatic, big, abrupt, incognito flea. And that, and that's for me, I mean, for me, that was my case. That was the only way I could get away from this person and like stand a chance at take two, you know, just, just yeah. getting away and starting a new chapter. Yeah. Um, I guess, I, I guess on that point, but like, you know, from a mental standpoint, like if we're, if we're looking internally, um, were there certain things that you did to help, again, improve the mental stability, the positivity, like were there books you read? Was it therapy? Was it, you know, support systems you had? What did you do to kind of help you get to that next level? For sure. Um, yeah, it was a combination of things and it was different resources at different stages. I would always recommend anybody that's in any sort of physical or mental abuse, any kind of situation like that to definitely rely on therapy. For me, that was the first time 
that was the first time I ever attempted therapy in my life. And I actually attempted it and sought it out while I was in that relationship. And I had multiple therapists catch me lying to them. <laughs> they were like, we can't really f help you until you're out. And I was like, no, I'm out. I swear we're not talking. No, it's, it's done. And, and, you know, they would see right through that because they're trained to do that and say like, you know, you're not going to really reap the benefits of these services and you're going to literally be wasting your money and time until you like exit the relationship and then can begin to rebuild yourself. So yeah, relied on therapy, relied on support groups a lot. Um, I, for one, always feel like I thrive when I'm busy and productive, probably to a fault, probably to the point where I burn myself out sometimes, but my career and my passions are always the things that I know I can always fall back on and lean into. So for me, the, the pivot into comedy was happening at the same time. And I had this really healthy outlet of something that I unconditionally love that I could guilt-free throw myself into on the tail end of that relationship. Um, and yeah, and another thing too, like just, you know, allowing yourself the grace to not be okay sometimes and know that just like every good career path, it's not always linear and it's not always easy too, but yeah. And all the things, you know, family, I have a great family. I have great friends, you know, but I, I truly did like uproot my life just cause that relationship took up so much of it that there was no way to keep most of the elements of the life prior around. So it just, it just intersected that way that I was like, okay, we are, we are starting over in every sense of the word. Like, is that when you moved to uh, New York city? No, I had, I had been in New York actually. Okay. Yeah. I was living in Jersey. Um, for most of that relationship, I moved to Brooklyn at the tail okay. end of that relationship. Now I'm based in Queens. So yeah, this is, this is a couple years out. This is like two and a half years out from that relationship. But, um, I moved to Queens. That is when I got out of PR. That is when I started comedy. That is when I started catcall. Um, I just, I knew I wanted to take whatever pain I was feeling and try to use it as proactively and positively as possible. Yeah. And that's what I did with it. Yeah. So, and we're talking about kind of getting started with comedy now. Yeah. How do you, so was the goal to, you talk about sketch writing and stuff, you know, doing sketches and improv and stuff before you talk about stand up, you know, strictly stand up stuff. Like what was your, and, and maybe it's changed, but what was the thought a couple of years ago? Of like, what were you going to do in comedy? The thought, it wasn't, it, it wasn't stand up. I think the thought was, be a host, be a talk show host, be a sketch comedian on SNL. That was the thought. And stand-up specifically was right under my nose the entire time. Like I, I just never considered it. it it's a very, uh, it's a purest form of comedy. It's a very unique lane in comedy. I think you can be a comedian and never touch on stand-up. There's a lot of people that are stand-up purists and never do other forms of comedy. Again, I was one of them. Um, but I had just found myself writing in a way that the only medium that made sense was stand up at that time. Uh, I was making jokes about that abusive relationship. I, when I would tell it to people as painful as it was for my friends and family to hear it on the receiving end, they were also crying, laughing. And they were like, it's, it's dark humor, but it's brilliant. It's funny. Like, it's like, you need to go on stage and talk about this. So stand up serendipitously fell into my lap at that time. So I, I always had improv and sketch resources on the side, but that was like the new obsession, especially at the tail end of that relationship, because it's such an honest medium. And yeah, those were the first jokes I told. Those that was the, you know, that was the stuff I wanted to write about. That was the stuff I found pain and humor in. And I started stand-up and then I was like, hey, how have I never done this before? So then that became the new obsession within the obsession, kind of. So 
What's the, uh, what's the genesis of writing a good joke? Hmm. Takes like, a how lot. do you write a good joke? Because, because it's one thing, yeah. like you say stuff with some friends and you get some laughs because it's just kind of off the cuff, but yeah. actually getting a set and putting it together and, and kind of going through that. How does that process work? I guess I'll just ask that now since we're talking about it. No, totally. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot. It takes like years and years and years to, to really get good at joke writing. And by good, I mean, writing brilliant, funny jokes and also pumping them out in an efficient manner, right? Like a lot of experienced comics, much older comics than I am say like, you know, your first hour or half hour is the hardest one. Cause you arguably spend your entire life a experiencing it and making it by living life and B, you know, writing and honing it and figuring out how to produce it for an audience. And then after that, it just gets easier. Right. So it's, it's a lot of writing. It's a lot of rewriting. Um, I think a lot of it is born through conversation with friends and family. Like, you know, if something that the people closest to you find funny and find resonates, then that's a good enough indication you should talk about it. But you have to understand once you become a comedian and you become an artist for a mass audience, you have to get people who don't already know you to get on board with it. And at that, laugh at it too. That's the difference. Like, it's like, okay, my friends crack up at this, but also my friends know me and they know my upbringing and they're always around me and they, they just, they're constantly talking to me. Um, and I think it's funny, but now I have to bring it to an audience in half the time, half the attention span and make it relatable to them from that distance. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah. And sometimes that's, that's just through writing and rewriting and figuring out why doesn't this land? What's off putting about this? Why is this part crowd always turn their head at this and, and, and like reading, reading the room. So that's, yeah. And I think that is the difference between people that are like funny and then people that choose a career in comedy. When you choose a career in comedy, you're like, I'm not producing jokes for my friends. I'm producing it for strangers. I'm producing it for the world. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of stuff too, you know, obviously I watch a, a lot of comedy specials and, you know, have mm-hmm. my favorites and stuff that you see the polished act after, you know, they might've been practicing that for a year, right. Going to different yeah. small clubs and stuff like that. So how do you practice for a set? Are you doing like, are you like finding like obscure open mics to go to? Are you like, <laughs> you know, how, how, so what are you doing to practice those jokes and see how they land or if you have to change the punchline or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, it's um the open mic is is essential. It's just a part of the daily routine now. I mean, not as much now and during COVID. I mean, I try to do as much as I can on Instagram and Zoom and God knows any social platform where I can be seen and heard. Um, but with my life in New York, yeah, it was not abnormal to get on stage seven times a day between two or three shows and three or four open mics and just you know, someone someone had posed this metaphor, this comparison to me about a professional athlete. They're like, well, you don't really make it to the NBA if you don't play every day. And and that's like an adjustment that I experienced as a comedian. And a lot of my friends and colleagues did too, where they were like, yeah, there's the, there's the date the first time you ever did stand up. And then there's the day where you like started doing stand up. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, Oh yeah, I have that day too. I know when I first got on stage and told jerks for the first time. And then I know the day that I realized like, oh shit, if I'm going to get good at this, I need to be on stage every waking moment that I can and constantly honing it. Um, Yeah, it's open mics. It's trying to make it a goal to get on stage every single day. So you're always working that muscle. Being on stage is your default. 
Um, it's a lot of writing. It's a lot of time spent in your head, hopefully in a proactive way. It's a lot of paying attention to the news, paying attention to other comedy. Um, yeah, to where to where it's hopefully just a default mode, just to make mm -hmm. sense of your own life and the lives around you through comedy. Yeah. What are what are your some some of your inspirations um, from a comedy standpoint? Oh man, it's a long long list. Um, what are your top three? Yes, I'll give you. You're like, let's narrow it down. No, that's a good. Yeah, top three is a fair. Um, I would say Eliza Schlesinger. Um, she's probably like my number one. I really admire her comedy. I think she makes great comedy for women that also men can digest and understand and gain value from. Um, really always resonated with her. Um, really big. She's old school, but I really loved Gilda Radner. Uh, I believe she was like one of the first females cast on SNL, if not the first, and really strong, goofy uh flamboyant if you will character actress just really strong um and my fa my family is truly like a, a third inspiration like they're a huge source of where my comedic voice was born they're funny people they love humor they laugh in the awkward moments and the tough moments um so whenever i feel like as if my comedy's off base or i don't know what else to write about or i've lost touch of my voice i usually alley you back around and know to always go back home or go back and, and go back and focus on my family or spend time with them because I, I rediscover myself again and what it is I think is funny. So they're definitely on the list too. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Well, so when you started getting into comedy, you mentioned cat call and some of the stuff you're doing. Yeah. Um, how did you decide, like, did you feel like, okay, I got to put some of these different shows together, like to get out? How did you, how did you realize instead of just saying, Hey, I'm going to show up to you know, a comedy club and say, Hey, I want to be on stage. Like, how did, how did you know to maybe do some of those things or how did those ideas come to your head? Yeah. It's, um, with comedy, I, I, I admittedly, I don't know, think I'm the only comedian that experienced this, but I, I can be embarrassed by what I thought I needed to do very early in starting stand-up versus now knowing what it is I actually need to do. Like, I look back at that and I'm like, yeah, you were pretty naive, even down to like how often you thought you needed to get on stage versus like what it really took to get on stage. I, I used to like cold call certain producers and, and now I cringe at those messages, like how I went. I just had no idea what the process was, but I was like so eager to to do it. And, you know, I spent so much time wasted not on stage in that relationship and in that part of my life that I was like, hi, I, I do comedy. Like, can you give me time? I just want to try this out. Um, so learning all that, um, and a, a comedy was a lot of falling on your face with that too. Like the only way to really learn that business is to like navigate as best as you can in the dark and take advice from people you trust. But unlike PR, the career I had before, I didn't have a playbook. I didn't have anybody telling me what it is I needed to do or what the metrics for success were. It was just like, Hey, just like do it every day and get on stage as much as you can and it's going to be tough and just follow your instincts. Right. Um, and then cat call was like, yeah, cat call started when I was in the music business and I just wanted an outlet to like mingle with other women and, and promote camaraderie between women and music. And those events became really fun to put on and just eventually branched out beyond concerts. Um, so they're now like my two, alter egos if you will my two my two paths like I have Brittany the comedian and that's wholly my story and my platform and then I have Brittany who like just really wants to advance women and what they're doing and what they go through and then that's that's cat call so that's like where my two creative focuses are 
Hmm. Yeah. And is that, I'm, I'm assuming that's born out of the domestic violence stuff and you don't want other people to go through that kind of want to expose that a little bit more. A little bit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think, um, I think I've always, I've always been a pretty raging feminist um, okay. my, my whole life. Uh, and I, I love female empowerment. I love, I love women and their talents and their voice and just, you know, supporting women as much as I can. I'm, I'm bolstered personally by really strong women. I was raised by a really strong woman. So I've always really loved the female voice, the female essence, if you will. Um, but catcall did start prior to that relationship. Um, but it, but for by, by all means had an amplified purpose on the tail end of it. Just, you know, it actually really took off right around the me too movement that like serendipitously interacted, like intersected. And I obviously didn't plan that, but that's when I left that relationship, started getting really busy with our events with cat call and the me too movement was exploding everywhere on social media. And it just all kind of, I was like, okay, this is, this is valid. This is important. This is stuff people want to talk about in here. So it was easy to kind of go from there. When you started these, and actually probably going back to the going on stage, did you have a lot of fear and anxiety getting up on stage in front of people? No, I didn't. And only because I had, I think I'm fortunate in the fact that I had performed for most of my life, even if it wasn't stand-up specifically. I, I always did acting and improv and sketch and dance. I was a dancer for many years too. Okay. So if there was any leg up that I had when it came to stand up specifically, it was that being on stage and being in front of people was like very comfortable for me. In fact, I always say like it's more comfortable than one on one interactions for me. Like I, I go on a first date and I'm is like, this awkward for you doing the podcast? No, this is wonderful. <laughs> no, Brian, you're the best. This is this, it feels like we've known each other forever. Um, no, but I feel like I always joke that I'm like I go on first dates and they're like I'm I'm sweating bullets and this like one on one connection with someone is so out of my comfort zone and vulnerable for me. But I can get on stage in front of 300 people and tell jokes about my abusive relationship or my IUD or God knows or my mother or God knows what. And that to me feels at home. That to me feels just fine. Um, so again, I think it's like, you know, so much of our lives and careers are about finding our own boundaries, where we feel strong, where we need growth, what feels what feels like home, what feels new and foreign. Um, so no, in terms of that, I never... I never would. And that was another sign too, that like, the, this is probably what I should be doing. It's so easy for me to, oh yeah, get on stage. Yeah. That's, a, you know, that's, that was second nature to me always. Yeah. So what do you feel to, to, obviously there's only a trim pool, right? From mm -hmm. you, And I'm talking about not that you can't be successful at comedy, but like, you know, the names that are out there, right? You're, you know, Chris Rock's getting his 40 million for a Netflix special type stuff. Right. Um right. Is that just, is there some luck involved in that? Is that just kind of getting in the right, like how, how have, or is it just kind of, Hey, we got to keep going through the motions. And if it sticks, it sticks. Like, do you think about that a lot in terms of from a success standpoint, or do you not let that kind of get in the way? I, I do. I do all the time. Um, because I have heard, I have heard that from older comics and it's just the stuff that you see that, you know, um, you could be really funny and you could work, you could work hard and it just never happens for, for you, whatever happening is right. Maybe it's mm -hmm. the Netflix special. Maybe it's being famous. Maybe it's just, you know, being someone who can do comedy in New York and pay their bills through that. Right. Um, and that was something that like transcended PR. Like I used to work with independent musicians and then I started to build my own career as an independent artist. And I was like, well, what was the advice I would give 
my clients, like at the time, if they were feeling restless or they were worried about their long-term success or commercial success. And I was, I was like, well, you, you got to define what success means to you. For some bands, it's winning a Grammy. For some bands, it's just being able to pay their bills through touring. So first off, like, what is successful to you? Like, what are your personal goals? And I think that's where you can make sure you don't let yourself down. Um, but yeah, that's always on my mind. Like, you know, there's, there's certain people that I think would take off and you're like, I don't really get it. You know, then there's other people that are hysterical and, and bust their butt every night doing comedy in New York and they never catch their break. And you're like, God, that's like kind of disheartening. Like, is that going to be me? Um, I do, I do believe, I, I still firmly have this belief, like if you're meant to do something and you commit yourself wholly to it and you work really, really hard at it, it's what you want to do, all of that. I do, th I think it's like one of the only things I can like cling to in this life. Like I'm like, you, you will get there. Like I have to, you know, like you look at a Chris Rock and I'm sure he's had plenty of setbacks and rejections and stuff, but like comedy is wholly unequivocally like what it is he's meant to do, you know? And I, I do think that the people that rise above and are household names and are really names in their field, like that's, I do think they're, they are destined and they found out what it is they're really good at and they worked at it and they were really passionate about it. Um, I know it happens all the time. People don't get the commercial success they deserve. I just find it really hard to believe that if you unconditionally love something and work at it every single day, that it won't happen for you in, in some yeah way you know yeah that's that's what's that's, what i gotta ask what's your bar what's like your high end what would you love to do like what would be like i okay this is I, i've reached you know maybe not the pinnacle but like i've reached one of my big life goals what what is that for you yeah do you know that have you I do. yeah i do i um i have my comedy goals and then i have the things that i want comedy to bring me to so it's like i mean from a comedy standpoint obviously want an hour special that's a that's a huge accomplishment to be able to produce an hour's worth of material that's really funny and holds on its own and can live and age well beyond its premiere date so like an hour special on any network would be a huge thing um from a comedian standpoint the clout and the respect around getting past at clubs like the comedy cellar in new york or the comedy store in la like those are comedy goals right like if you can get a green light from those people and those bookers and producers you as a comedian have honed your craft and you as a live performer are like a professional. That's, that's, you know, where it is for me. Um, personal goal. I would love to have my own late night talk show. It's always been something I would love to reinvent it. I have a lot of ideas around it. I don't think females are super well represented in that, in that field. Um, so I would There's love not, to like, Are there even any like no, major? I mean, well, Chelsea Handler, I love, and I think, you know, what she did was really, I, I love her. I, like, I, I've always thought she's personally very funny, and I enjoyed all of the stuff that she produced on her show. Um, but no, you're right. Yeah. Like, the late nights are still, like, and they're great, but, like, Fallon, Colbert, Kimmel, you know, all of that. Um, we haven't really had a mainstream female talk show host or producer really break through and have that kind of success, so that is a goal of mine as well. And then like using comedy, like if comedy brings a notoriety and gets people paying attention, using that to like build a greater network for domestic violence survivors, however that might look. Like maybe it's my own nonprofit, maybe it's my own organization, maybe it's my own, a movie, a, a production, I don't know. You know, think of like production companies on the list too. Um, 
so yeah and i mean i would always want to do comedy for the rest of all time but i definitely have some larger global scale goals that i'm like well if comedy is the way to get noticed mm-hmm. that'll that'll take me to the next the next thing but i can see myself doing com- i will never not do comedy like ever it's like it's i i'm going crazy in quarantine not getting on stage for months so yeah, yeah. well you're doing your uh the uh, the tarot how'd you get the tarot the, the the improvised tarot how'd you get into that stuff oh, I, know, I haven't I actually and I and I'm embarrassed to say I haven't seen one yet so I'm okay. wondering do you have the tarot cards with you I, I could go I could go pull them from the other room if you want me to and I can give we you should do a fun like th- I don't know how it works so that's why I'm like yeah so I improvised uh... It is improvised. So I um I do my guilty pleasure. I gotta say it. Judge me all you want. I do love tarot and I do love astrology. It's I, I like that. Let's talk about that a little bit. Go get the cards. Go get come on, this will be fun. I've never cards? done this before. Go get it, go get them. Okay, I'm getting my decks. I have many decks. I'm getting them. Okay, here we go. For everyone listening on audio, Brittany is getting the deck of tarot cards. <laughs> Here she is, everyone. Um, okay. Okay, I got, I got a dumb question because, again, very naive nope. in this subject. Tell me the genesis of tarot cards. What What do they mean? Why are they used? Yeah, so they're like they're for people who are mentally unstable, like me. No, I'm kidding. Um, I'm kidding. Uh, they are. I actually do believe that they are an Italian practice as well, but they were used by like astrologers and <laughs> witches many, many, many years ago. Um, and when there was like global and political uncertainty, they would go to these people and some of these astrologers had columns in the local papers and they would refer to this like arcane, archaic tarot deck. Um, and that there was, you used intuition and chance and based on the cards that you pulled, they all represent the cycles of life. And like, there's like swords for thought, wands for passion and action, pentacles for security and cups for emotion and creativity, right? And it's all directly tied into astrology. Um, so super into astrology too, all of that stuff. Um, what's your sign? Aquarius. Okay. What sign are you? Can you guess? Wait, what do you? Yeah, I want to guess. I was just gonna say, I actually have a knack for this. Um, what do you need to know to guess besides my birthday? <laughs> I usually have a go-to besides the exact month, date, and year of your of your birthday. Um, what's your like biggest? What would you say is your biggest weakness? Wow, she's laying the uh, therapy couch here. Um, That's the only question I'll ask. I'm gonna go by other factors after that biggest weakness yeah what if i don't know um (laughs) that's an answer in and of itself brian it is um i i mean i don't even know if this is a weakness like it's probably it's i'm i'm too hard on myself like i'm too critical of myself and, and again, I think that comes from upbringing, you know, confidence, stuff like that. So I think that's one of my weaknesses is continuing to have to believe that I am good enough to do certain things. And that's been a hard path through my life. Um, I don't know if that's a good answer. I don't even know. Like, I guess I don't think about weaknesses as much. I don't know. Okay. Um, you know, you're fine, right? You know it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm going to guess an Aries or a Leo. I'm right. It's an Aries. Yes. <laughs> Good job. Nice. Oh man. Now, why did you pick Aries? Um, the whole I'm not sure what my weakness is. Okay. 
that there's an inherent confidence to you. Like that's a fire sign quality as well too. Um, and you also seem very, very proactive. Um, you seem super organized. You, su you seem super action and project oriented. Like fire sign people are the doers of the Zodiac. So it didn't seem like you were someone who like, I mean, I'm sure you live in your head sometimes. We all do as human beings, but yeah. um, it's just also like a vibe I get from certain people. Like I'm able to just like, sometimes I'm off base when I guess, but I think it's the way you answered and you had a very grounded answer at the end of it as well too. And when you said like confidence in growing up and like grappling with that and, and not entirely sure, but ultimately always being hard on yourself, it just, yeah. Aries or Leo is what I thought. And also based on your presence, like you run a podcast, you do have like a public presence. So all these things kind of came into play. Interesting. You know, because the astrology stuff is interesting to me because, and I've talked with yeah. other people about this because I'm not, I don't get into that type of stuff, but it is interesting yeah. to me how when you do look at similarities, when you do look at even like the whole thing of like, you know, like relationships of people are in, like which ones you can almost tell would be good or not because of there's, it's really fascinating, uh, really fascinating to me of how that matches up. And maybe it's just sheer luck. I don't know. Yeah. But. Yeah. I am. Um, I'm with you. I mean, I look at every successful relationship that I have in my life and like from my best friends down to my own romantic relationships, down to like marriages in my family. And it like nine times out of 10 always like, astrologically makes sense um i think there is something to be from then again i'm like going on my soapbox but i think there is something to be said from like being born at a similar time and under similar conditions um and i i don't think i'm like well i mean we would still have to ultimately see what's going on on planet earth for what it is but i wouldn't be surprised and never have been surprised that like we do exist in a solar system and in a galaxy and whatever's going on over there is going to have an effect on us too so, and again, we take it all with a grain of salt, right? Like, I, you know, I take my horoscope with a grain of salt, but. Are you and I going to get along in the future then? Do we have a, what's the signs with the Aries? Aries and, and Aquarius are like adventure buddies, best okay. friends. They create shit together. Like they're great. Aries and right. fire, fire and air are great elements. Like when they get together, they're like, let's go adventure. Let's go see the world. Let's do it. So yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. All right. Maybe um, there's a, there's a Brittany Bray, Brian and Draco podcast in the future. Who knows? I already saw it in the future. I asked the cards five minutes ago. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, I was into it, tarot and astrology. And then I came up with this concept like two years ago that I thought it'd be funny to have comedians BS the tarot readings. All right. So how do we do this? Yeah. Let's do, let, this will be fun. It? Let's do this for a few minutes. Okay. So I actually do read tarot. So what I'll do is I'll read the first part of it, how I would as the comedian, and then I'll give you an actual reading at the end. Okay. Um, well, the way the show works is we open it up to the audience. I host it and I try to get to know the audience members and any questions that you have. Okay. So is there an area of your life? Is, is it, you ask me a question. Is there something you're curious about? Love life, career, anything. The more specific, the better, but you know, whatever you want to share. Ask the cards. For, I'm asking you the question. You're asking me. You're asking the cards, technically. Yeah. Okay. Anything at all. And by specific, I mean like we've had people come on the show and be like, "When is COVID gonna go away?" And we're like, "Okay, like we can make that funny through the cards, but it usually works better for the show format when someone's like, "Hey, I'm thinking of moving from New York to LA. Should I do it?" And then it's like, "Okay." Um, okay. Yeah. Do you have a question? All right. Let's ask. When are you gonna get back on the subway? When am I going to get back on the subway? Yes. Okay. Okay. Let's see. Let me pull a card. Okay. 
when am I going to get back on the New York City subway? God willing. Okay. When am I going to get back on the New York City subway? Shuffling the cards. Feeling this out. I pull from two different Rider weight decks. Okay. Oh, okay. The tower. I pulled the tower card. Um, yeah. As you can see, there's a lot of chaos on this deck. There's a lot of shit going down. All of this, you know what? All of this would happen within the span of a 20 minute subway ride in New York City. Something would catch on fire. Um, people would be throwing their bodies off of the seats. Um, I think that's a conductor here sticking his head out of the window and trying to regain order. Um, this, this is about as chaotic as the MTA pre-post pandemic right here. Um, so it looks like as if I'm going to be riding the subway soon and uh, it's gonna be just as insane as it was. Sorry, my parents' landline is going off in the background. That's a, that's a comedy special in itself right there. It really that's... is, like quarantining at home chapter four right now, like truly. <laughs> Every, and it never- Aren't you amazed when people have landlines still? Yeah, nobody calls them except for like political parties they're not signed up for that yeah. are trying to get them to like transfer over or like telemarketers and the phone won't ring all day except when their daughter is trying to do something for her. It's it's a sign. It's an omen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the tower is the card of literally uh, stuff going down and absolute utter chaos. It's like okay. a stuff's about to happen card. Um, and like I said, this looks like a day in the life of the New York City MTA. So I'll be riding the subway soon. And I can expect it to be exactly how it was when I left it in March. Yeah. Does the tower tell you that it's soon? When when is the date? Like, how do you know that? What's the from the cards? And yeah, again, these are questions I have no idea I'm asking. No, totally, totally. I I would probably like need to pull more cards if I were to ask like specifically oh, okay. what that would be. Okay. Um, but the, so like the tower for like a tarot lesson, if you will, the tower is a major arcana card. There's like major arcana cards and minor arcana cards. And the major arcana cards are like face cards like this. Like anytime you pull them, something's big is going to go down. Like it's like major junctures in your life. Minor arcana. Okay, this is perfect. Would be like a six of swords where it's not the tower. It's just like along the journey of the swords. Um, tower and tarot and tarot means like, uh, you're going to be fine, but like something's going to happen. Hmm. It, it's brace yourself kind of thing. Um, and I am planning to go back to New York later this week for a brief visit and for a couple work things and whatnot. So it's not surprising to me that you asked when I would ride the subway again, it'll probably be within the week and it'll probably be just as chaotic as it was before. Interesting. Okay. The tower is a scary card. I'm not going to lie. So I'm a little like spooked that I- So do you it. avoid the subway then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and drain my bank account on Ubers, I guess. Yeah. 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 You can, I mean, walk, I guess, depends how long the- Depends where we are. Yeah, it depends. It was on scooter, right? Did they outlaw the scooters in New York City? I truly don't know. I think city bikes are just coming back and stuff. And New York is concerning me right now because they've moved through like three phases in less than a month. So I'm glad and I'm so proud of the city and the progress that it's made, but they're like getting ready to go into phase three. And I'm like, we're switching phases week to week, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's a little, the tower is not, I don't think the tower is that inaccurate. Let me put it that way. I think- okay. It also okay. means the second wave is coming, but yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so that with that, so this is is this how the improv tarot goes? Is you kind of just people ask random questions, you'll pull yeah. it, you'll yeah, and have some fun um, with it. 
Okay. I usually either I do the reading because I've, I've now gotten accustomed to reading tarot. I'm not a psychic by any means, but I, I can read the cards and interpret them. Uh, but I usually have a psychic on deck. So I host it. I get to know the audience. It, it's really a super special show because it kind of doubles as like comedy and therapy all in one for a lot mm -hmm. of people. Like they present their problems and we get to know them. And then uh, the psychic will pull the cards, but we let the comedians do the reading and they don't know anything. So it, they're just full of crap. And they just try to like, you know, connect the dots between what they see on the card and what the person shared about their personal life. And it's hilarious. And it, it just, like I said, at the very least, it brings the audience members like huge comic relief over whatever's weighing on their mind. And then at the end of the round, a psychic comes in and is like, well, hey, if you do want to look into the future, I can actually tell you what it is that you pulled and yeah. what might happen kind of thing. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's super, I don't know. I came up with it like, yeah, almost two years ago and it's been a lot of fun to do. What, uh, I'm curious about this. If you growing up, right. And, and you could take, pick a time or whatever, but like, was there something you believed back then where you just completely realized it was untrue? Like we talk about society kind of norms in that process, but anything like yeah. you, you kind of thought through the process and like, why did I ever think that was correct? Or why did I think that was something I should believe in besides That's Santa? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really great question. Um, there's, there's a ton, there's a ton of stuff. I, th I guess it really was that you have to like, like one of the things was like that you have to pick a career and stick with it. Right. Like, I think that's like one of the things that you have to pick a career and you have, and, and you have to stick with it forever. And that changing it means like disarray or is like inefficient or anything um, mm -hmm. that, and then I, it, I mean, tons of stuff. I mean, I'm still like, I'm, I'm 29. I'm gonna be 30 next year. Like I'm still like reevaluating like, uh, relationships, uh, life, everything. Uh, another thing. Okay. This is another thing too, that I recently have been doing a lot of thinking about is like the idea of like bad advice. Like it took me many, many years into my adulthood to realize you shouldn't take advice from everybody. And that there is very much so a thing as like bad advice. Mm -hmm. And it, it doesn't even necessarily need to come from like a, a bad place, like where there's malintent, but I guess that's something too, that like growing up, I just like took advice from anyone and didn't trust my own devices and then confused myself and it led to inaction. And now I'm like, no, you have to be like very careful in particular with where you source and take advice. And you can, there's a difference between hearing criticism or advice and like ingesting it and acting on it too. Yeah. So yeah. And I think I, it's all, it's also like the, you know, the confirmation bias, like some people ask, 10 people for advice because they're looking for the one person that agrees with the, what they want to do. And they're like, oh, yep, I'm going to take that advice. Like, that's good yeah. advice. And it's like, well, wait a minute. That's every girl with a dating dilemma. Like, she goes around every person in her friend group waiting just for, she doesn't get the answer she wants, but she gets the right and obvious answer. And then she waits until she hits the one friend who goes, no, I think he likes you. And then she goes, there you go. That's what I thought too. Like, it's it's the same, it's the same thing. Or, you know, nobody knows I think like you have to be really picky and choosy with, with, with where you get advice and if you take it or not. But I ultimately think that like, I don't know, I've learned to lean on my gut and my intuition a lot more into my late twenties and beyond and everything. So it's Same like, here. well, I'm in my, I'm not going to say late thirties, 37. So that's like, late 30s. that's still mid thirties. Can I, that's can I grasp on the mid thirties? Yes. Yes, you can. Yes. Yeah. It's okay. I'm 90 years old secretly. I feel so, you know. 
It's yeah. Well, it's it's how much you feel. See, I feel a lot younger. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel ninety for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, let me ask you this then. Yeah. You got to go back to your younger self one more time. Now, this is where it gets fun. All right. Okay. Is you only have a post-it note, but you have to give a piece of advice to that younger person. Yeah. What are you going to say to your 17, 18, 19 year old self? Get out of your own way. Get out of your own way. You're in your head. Anytime you think you can't, a lot of your fears are false and are irrational or they're imposed on you by society or what it is you think is right. Like you are capable of way more than you think you're going to be able to survive way more than you even think the best is yet to come. The worst is yet to come. The best thing you can do is get out of your own way. There's going to be enough stuff that's going to get in your own way. Enough, enough trials and tribulations and unexpected setbacks and everything that comes with life, right? The, the least thing you can do is not be the thing getting in your own way. Not be the reason you don't do something or you wait to do something or you think you can't or whatever the case is, you know? So if you're the constant between A to B, A to Z, whatever the process is, you know, and you are the constant in any journey between that, like you might as well be the one thing you can rely on because you can't count on anything else. So get, I would get out of my own way quicker, get out of my own head quicker, for sure. Great thoughts. I enjoy that. Um, definitely, uh, definitely agree with it as well. Um, where can everyone find you online? Where's the best place to connect? Oh my goodness. Everywhere. Um, everywhere that Brittany Brave can be searched. She probably has a profile. Um, Brittany Brave on Instagram, Brit Brave on Twitter, Brittany Brave Comedy, Brit Brave Comedy, all of that. I'm, I'm anywhere online. Whenever you Google Brittany Brave, you either get a direct link to my comedy or you get like a toddler who has a brave journey after fighting a shark or something. You just get like a very inspirational story. Someone who's much braver than me. So. Well, you do have a cool name. Like, and that's Thank your real you. name, right? Real name. Yeah, real name. Yeah. That's a badass last name. Thank you. Yeah, I was born with a stage name. So I guess I have to be a comedian now, right? Gotta there take you it go. There. It's kind of ingrained <laughs> in there. <laughs> um, this is a lot of fun. So I guess we have some projects we have to work on together. Those yeah. are some things we'll keep talking about. Um, you're going back to New York. You're going to start, I, hopefully the clubs open up sooner and later. Um, that'll be, that'll be good, but. Fingers crossed. Um, so we have an outdoor rooftop comedy in New York. So that's, what's making me antsy to at least go back for a visit because it's opening up ish. Slowly. Have you been working on a lot of material? Yeah. Do you have a yeah. ton like just ready to go? Yeah, I do. Yeah. And I also think it's like, you know, at first we were like, we're all writing material about quarantine and the weird events of 2020. And we're like, is this even going to matter afterwards? But now on like, well deep into all of this, I'm like, yeah, well, there's no way I can get on stage ever again and not address this time in, mm -hmm. in history than this time in 2020. So um, yeah, I've done a lot of Zoom shows, a lot of writing, a lot of rewriting and everything. So yeah, my, my creative cups are about to overflow. For sure. I'm very, I'm very, very excited to get back on a real stage. Like I'm super stoked. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm excited for you. And I, I truly appreciate you coming on. I'm glad to get a chance to uh, chat with you more. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I hope you all enjoyed that interview. And thanks again for stopping by. And just one more quick thing before you run along on your day. You know, this podcast has grown very organically since I started it over two and a half years ago. So anything you can do to share this episode out to your network 
or maybe go to Apple Podcast and leave a rating and review. Um, anything you can do at all, I'd certainly be appreciative of it. Um, if you'd like to connect with me online, my website, brianondraco.com, or head over to Instagram or LinkedIn and Twitter, at brianondraco, or type my name, brianondraco, and it'll come up. I hope you all have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.